According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're going to be in Luke 24 today and John chapter 20. I'm not sure how long it'll take to wrap up the last details of uh, episode 6. And then we will be uh, moving on into episode 7. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that uh, we are, uh, distractions are set aside and that we are prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for um, the power of your word as it resides within each one of us, uh, dwelling richly, Father, uh, springing forth to bear much fruit. Father, uh, we do ask for your assistance this morning, that you would set aside distractions, that you would take hold of our thinking, that uh, no impairment might take place either on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers. Father, uh, glorify your Son today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, looking, uh, there's six points of study, and we've almost concluded all of them related to his appearance to the two disciples on the uh, Emmaus Road. Uh, We concluded in the first point that the them does not refer to apostles, but them refers to the others that are with the apostles uh, there in Jerusalem. Uh, We conclude that because one of them is named Cleopas in verse 18, and he's not one of the the twelve, and so... We don't believe that the other one would have been either part of the twelve, that these are part of the others that were with the twelve. We know that there was uh, Matthias. We know that there were additional disciples with them uh, on Pentecost, for example, and in the days in between the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. So no issues with that. We, uh, in the second point of study, looked at the uh, geography for Emmaus and where it's located Uh, Not a lot of certainty on the part of the scholars, but three or four leading candidates for uh, this location. Uh, My favorite, I think, is the most accurate probably is the Arab town called Kubeba uh, that you still find on maps today. It's on the wrong side of the security fence, though, so if you go there, uh, you're going to be in the uh, what the uh, Arabs call the West Bank, um, what the Jews call uh, Judea and Samaria. (laughs) In any event, uh, if you go to the Arab-controlled... regions, then you can go to the village of Kubeba, and that's most likely where the uh, biblical Emmaus was, uh, was located. Uh, under point three, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. They were prevented from recognizing Jesus, and I don't think you could take it any other way than the plain sense of what we see here. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That's what it says. Uh, I suppose we can debate, well, who did that? Did Satan blind their eyes? Okay, 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God of this age blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a tactic of Satan to blind uh, people, the minds of the unbelieving, but th- that doesn't appear to be the case here. They are disciples. They are saved. They, uh, they know who Jesus is, or at least they have a, uh, an inferior understanding of that. 
Um, no, I think it was God who did this. Same thing when, uh, when Mary Magdalene was prevented from recognizing Jesus and she thought he was the gardener. Same thing when uh, the disciples in, in John 21 are going to be prevented from recognizing him until uh, they bring in this great haul of fish and John tells Peter, hey, you know, I think that's the Lord over there. <laughs> All right. Um, so I suspect that this is God's hand at work. Um, if not, then there's a whole lot of other unresolved questions that we would have to puzzle through. Uh, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And that point right there, I think, is useful. You say, well, why would God, why would God deliberately obscure something so that you don't see it right away? Okay, well, because God's a lot smarter than we are. And he's got a purpose for it. And it may be that we have to be tested in a realm of ignorance until such time as we can then be retested in a realm of knowledge. And uh, it may be that, uh, yeah, of course, it's the will of God for us to learn his will and learn his word, but it's going to come in stages and it's going to come as a process. And the things you're going to learn, you're going to learn in the timing that he designates so that you're equipped for the testing that he's also designated, if that makes any sense to you. Anyway, the more I've pondered this um, blindness, uh, the more I've come to appreciate it when God keeps my eyes shut on certain things. And it's frustrating. You pull your hair out and say, Lord, I don't understand why this is going on. I don't understand why this knucklehead doesn't apply doctrine and get over it, you know. But I'll just continue to walk in my non-understanding, all right? I'll just continue to walk by faith and let him figure it out, you know, because he's already got it figured out. That's the best part. All right. Their conversation was on current events, and we talk about happenings and uh, the slaves that unbelievers are to their happenings. Sadly, the slaves that believers become to their happenings because they don't occupy with Christ, they don't keep their attention focused on the things above, they don't run with endurance the race that's set before them. And so carnal believers are functionally no different than unbelievers when it comes down to that issue. Uh, They're just uh, subject to their happenings. And the things that happen make them happy. Or the things that don't happen make them unhappy. And the very language of happy comes from the same language of happen. And it deals with, I think, the the empty, lost condition of humanity that's just bouncing from one happening to the next. All right? And it gives you something to talk about when you're walking uh, down the road. So, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not opposed to talking, and we can talk about happenings. But what we want to do is turn the conversation to spiritual things. And so we go from the happenings to the reasons for the happenings and the plan of God in the happenings. Then maybe we've got an open door for preaching the gospel or talking to uh, maybe encouraging a a younger believer in uh, the uh, stability of their faith. Finally, uh, point five then. A lot of subpoints for each of these. I'm just skipping through. Uh, Jesus called them foolish. And then he taught them beginning with Moses. How do you deal with a fool? Okay, That might be a useful Bible study sometime. How do you deal with a fool? Because Proverbs talks about it quite a bit. New Testament talks about it. Um, well, do you make excuses for their foolishness? Or do you call them on it and say, here's the truth. All right, You, know, you can stay a fool if you want, but I don't recommend that. There's provision for that. And uh, Jesus calls them foolish. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The problem is, is that you've got to trust what God has said. What, what are the boundaries? What are the barriers that's hindering your application of faith? Why are you not letting yourself believe? Okay, now keep this in mind. This, this is the rebuke upon these two guys, but it's going to come back again with the disciples here very quickly. 
Because Jesus is going to appear to the disciples minus Thomas, and then he's going to appear to the disciples with Thomas. And doubting Thomas gets a, a bum rap on a lot of things. Uh, I, I'd, I'd prefer to rename him because there's a willfulness in his doubt. All right, It's not just he's a weak sister and can't believe. It's actually a willfulness in his defiance of why he won't believe. Okay, And I'm getting ahead of myself because I can't wait to preach that. Now, he calls them foolish and then taught them. Taught them. It's not enough to just be a name caller and walk away and say, you fool, and off with you. Um, he calls them foolish, but then he remedies their foolishness. He has the provision for them. He begins to teach them, and he teaches them systematically. Teaches them systematically. And I really enjoy this uh, third component of it as it relates to uh, the prophets, and then beginning with Moses, and from the prophets. We have the idea of a sequence. We have the idea of a place to start and a place to go from there. Right? Beginning with Moses. So start with Genesis. Start with uh, you know, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Start there. But then... Branch out from there, taking the whole counsel of God's word. You have to understand, he says here, slow to believe in all, all that the prophets have spoken. That's all of it. That's Genesis to Malachi. That's whole counsel. In other words, if it's in the Bible, you've got to make it part of your study related to uh, what you're dealing with. So it uh, indicates a systematic Bible study comparing scripture with scripture, synthesizing the whole counsel of God. Okay, I freely confess, I've been um, a peeping Tom, no, a peeping Bob, but I haven't been peeping. I've been, I've been what do you call it if you're listening instead of looking? I've, I'm, a, I'm not a peeping Bob, I'm an eavesdropping Bob. Yeah, um, because it's really, uh, I've been curious. We have this conference coming up, and, we're, and our theme for the conference is Romans 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you, uh, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And so in in appreciation for that form of teaching to which you were committed, that form of teaching where it's line upon line, precept upon precept, it's coming from an exegetical study out of the Hebrew, out of the Greek. It's comparing Scripture to Scripture. It's putting together a doctrine that, that... surveys the whole breadth of scripture in a, in a complete inductive systematic way and we have such a heritage i've had it all my life um <clears throat> but you know and then i got in the army and i visited some other places and i saw some military chaplains and and, and i came to realize how spoiled i was by other forms of teaching okay forms of teaching to which i'm not committed other people are and I'm not beating them up or, 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 or bragging or, or being critical. I'm just observing that there's some real differences out there. Huge differences out there. And, uh, and so I've been eavesdropping. I've been, I've been going to websites and listening to Sunday sermons, which are the only ones you can listen to because they're pretty much once a week anyway, um, and listening to the Sunday sermons. And, and I've seen these signs all around town for Explore God. And we had, I think, 22 voicemail messages going back for the last six months um the church answering machine keeps getting these voicemail messages how come you're not participating in explore god you need to participate in explore god why are you not signed up yet why is austin bible church not taking part in the in the uh, explore god crusade 
all across Austin, 370 churches are doing this right now. But we're not. Well, why not? Okay? And then I get emails for a question and answer night. Why is Austin Bible Church not doing Explore God? It seems exciting. Okay? Well, it does seem exciting. And they've got a big advertising blitz with posters and billboards and radio ads and all kinds of stuff. So I've been eavesdropping. <laughs> and let me tell you, what Jesus did with these guys, he should be doing with these other guys. Just begin with Moses and begin to explain from the scriptures, whole counsel, and teach systematically and teach with authority. Anyway, he didn't just chit chat with them about current events and then try to leave them a, a you know a, a moral plug at the end to feel good about what they're doing and go about their lives. All right, a systematic. Inductive, systematic Bible study, comparing Scripture with Scripture, synthesizing the whole counsel of God. Finally, then the last, the sixth point, deals with the lateness. It's not that late. Remember, they had wanted him to stay with them. They said, oh, it's so late. You don't want to go past Emmaus. It's too far to the next village. You should just stay here, eat with us, keep teaching us, spend the night with us. So it seems pretty late because he acted like he was going to keep on going. And... um, and so uh, when he did that, they said, oh, no, no, you've got you to gotta stay here. And uh, anyway, so once his eyes are open then, I find it remarkable that um, it's not really all that late. After all, let's run seven miles back to Jerusalem. Okay? And how fast can you cover seven miles? I, I expect they were so motivated, they, they never stopped. You know. Um, so they got up that very hour returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. Those who were with them. And, and they have their current events topic going on. They walk into the middle of that conversation saying, those who are with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Now they believe it because one of the twelve has had an appearance. Peter has had his appearance. Simon called Cephas, called Peter, called son of John. All right. The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They didn't believe it when the women told him. And then they went and checked out the empty tomb. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't see any angels. And, uh, but now that the Lord has appeared to Simon, as per 1 Corinthians 15, 4, right? That he appeared first to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 at one time. As soon as he appears to Simon, then, okay, we can actually believe this. All right. So, so point A, the lateness of the day prompted their offer of hospitality. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, the way Jesus broke bread opened their eyes, kind of similar to the way he said Mary, that uh, opened Mary Magdalene's eyes when she realized it was the Lord, and she said, Rabboni. And uh, the lateness of the day did not hinder them from a seven-mile return hike to Jerusalem. They raced back at uh, top speed. And then, when they got there, is when they found the eleven and others gathered together discussing the Lord's appearance to Simon, Cephas, Peter. And this, of course, is very much compatible with what we see in 1 Corinthians 15.5. The Lord died according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose again according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain alive until now. Some have fallen asleep. All right. That first appearance to Peter is significant because that starts 
even the, well, it starts, the disciples, even the doubting ones, to start thinking, hey, this must be true, Peter said so. (laughs) Okay? As far as that goes. So, they found the eleven and others gathered together discussing the Lord's appearance to Simon. So then they, the Emmaus Road disciples, began to relate their experiences on the road and how he, Jesus, was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So now they have their story to tell. So they walked in in the middle of this other story being told. Now they have their story to tell. So now the, uh, the Emmaus Road disciples are able to explain their experiences. The Emmaus Road disciples begin to explain their experiences. Now, we, we ran out of time last week and didn't have the opportunity to look at these verses or discuss the uh, Greek word ex egeomai, the Greek um, verb here, number 1834. It's a great Strong's number, 1834. That's the year Spurgeon was born. Um, Ralph always liked it because he was 1934. So <laughs> he always liked being born in the 100th year of uh, Spurgeon. I said, well, Ralph, Spurgeon died in 1892. Are you signing up for that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're going to die in 1992? I didn't want that to happen. I just met him in 1990. So anyway, Strong's number 1834. There are six New Testament uses. The verb is ex egeomai, ex egeomai. It uh, means to relate in detail. It's, it's one of several verbs that means to, to tell, to report. You've got something to tell. You've got something to describe. And in many ways, it's actually a... Uh, of all the different words we have in the New Testament to, to speak or to say or to teach or to say something, um, this one might even be the most vivid of any that we have in the sense that it's where we get the, the verb to exegete, if we're going to exegete a passage. Uh, what are we doing? We're, 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 we're leading out. Ago is to lead or to bring. Uh, so ago, to bring. Exo, out. We're bringing out of the text all the details, all of the impact, all of the application, all of the context, all of the everything that's pertinent to our uh, understanding, pertinent to our um, submission that we have to submit to the scriptures. So you have ago plus x, x egeomai is what we have here. And in these uses, uh, maybe the most powerful one is the next one after this is John 1.18. The fact that Jesus came to exegete God the Father. Alright? So we're going to look at these here in a moment. And if you'd like, let's we can turn to John. Let's just relook at it here in Luke first though. Luke 24.35 They began to relate relate their experiences okay that's how it's rendered is relate and i don't remember how the holman does it the holman sometimes has more what does the holman do with that dan do they do relate oh okay we can look it up here luke 24 35 describe they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them in the breaking of bread okay describe that's a good term because you're drawing out you're bringing out all the details you're bringing out all of the the uh the pertinent information and this gets very popular in fact this gets substituted for teaching and that's why we have to understand where does this fall in the scriptures 
And is this a substitute for what the Lord was doing in the systematic, comprehensive, verse-by-verse teaching, beginning with Moses? All right. There's a place for the teaching, and then there's a place for the testimony. Okay? And here's where I'm going to get stoned by both groups on either side. (laughs) Because there is a crowd that so idolizes doctrinal teaching that any kind of a personal testimony is wrong, bad, go away. What are you, a heretic? Okay, There is a place for your testimony. And we're going to learn, and by reading through these passages, where that place is. Okay, And it's not... It is not as a substitute. It doesn't take the place of our teaching. It doesn't replace our teaching schedule. But on top of that, in other settings, in other venues, it is actually very appropriate, extremely appropriate. It's called the fellowship of your faith, and it's supposed to be effective. It's supposed to, uh, uh, in the in the sharing, the koinonia, the sharing of what God is producing in you, is supposed to be an active transmission of your faith to a brother in christ and it may be that uh <laughs> they're uh, they're craving it at the moment they uh that uh your sister or your brother or somebody you're talking to um is really really going to be blessed by you exegeting what god's doing in your life okay not in place of bible class but alongside of bible class I think it works great if it's in tandem. If it becomes an application of a doctrine. Say, man, we've we've been studying angels the last three weeks and I think I saw an angel today. And then you start to explain and exegete and relate your testimony for how God delivered you from uh, from a a vehicle mishap or something that you were just sure you 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 were dead. This green truck was just filling your vision and you thought, that's it, I'm gone, I'm going to heaven. And the last thing you remember is... Lord, take care of Sharon. And then somehow the truck teleported because you missed it and you're safe. Okay, That's what Cliff and I experienced with Ralph uh, LaRosa in the Philippines. We have no idea how that green truck didn't kill us. But there it was. So we relate these stories. We describe these stories. We share our testimonies when appropriate and in the appropriate setting so john 1 18 here's our next use of ex egetamai the word became flesh this is verse 14 and dwelt among us remember the word is god the son before uh, uh, entering into the womb of the virgin the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And uh, the contrast here, what an advantage it was to have God in the flesh, to have the incarnate God the Son, the God-man walking among us. Tremendous advantage of His fullness we've all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What a powerful impact that the apostles had by uh, ministering with Jesus Christ for those three and a half years. Then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Remember, the Father is invisible. The Father is spirit. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the monogonestaos, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. 
He has exegeted him. He has related him. He has described him. He has done for God the Father what these two disciples on the Emmaus Road did for Jesus when they got back to talk to those other apostles. Okay? They wanted to detail the complete story as, as best as they could. And that's what Jesus is doing here for the Father. He came to reveal the Father. He came to unfold the Father. And so chapter by chapter by chapter, especially through the Gospel of John, <clears throat> he's unveiling the Father. He talks about the Father's gift. He talks about the Father's house. He talks about you must be born again. He talks about the, uh, the Father who does, seeks those to be His worshipers in spirit and in truth. He says, my teaching is not mine, but whatever I hear from my Father, so I teach. Chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter. He says in chapter 6, my Father has given you this bread out of heaven. Every chapter is another, uh, ex- ag- am I, an- another unfolding of God the Father. Another exegeting of God the Father. In chapter 2, he says, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. Okay? So, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John, we find Jesus Christ exegeting the Father. Acts chapter 10. Another use of exegemi. Acts chapter 10. Uh, after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, there's a context for that. Um, Here's the man named Cornelius, the centurion, what was called the Italian cohort, Uh, a devout man, one who feared God. A devout man, by the way, is never used of an unbeliever in Scripture. You can't be a devout unbeliever. You can be a religious unbeliever with a zeal not in accordance with knowledge, but a devout uh, unbeliever is a contradiction in terms. Devout is only used of believers. So he's a Gentile Old Testament believer he, who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Okay? He had an orientation towards Israel and their stewardship, and even though he was a Gentile, he blessed them. I believe he did so in faith, recognizing that God blesses those who blesses Israel and curses those who curses Israel. Then about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? So he knows who Yahweh is. He knows who the Lord is. He's a believer. And he's interacting with this vision. He said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So this is not an unbeliever who wants to get saved, and so God hears all his prayers and says, okay, I'm going to send Peter to you so you can <clears throat> receive eternal life. And uh, no, he's a believer. He's a believer in verse 1. But he needs to be brought into the church age. Just as many Je- uh, Jewish believers are crossing over now from being an Old Testament Jewish believer into being a New Testament member of the body of Christ, now it's starting to happen to Gentile Old Testament believers. Saved before the cross, but now transitioned into the church. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, verse 5, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter, who is also called Cephas, who is also called... (laughs) Okay, got a lot of names. And uh, when the angel who was speaking, uh, for he's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is uh, by the sea. So you got Simon staying with Simon. Simon Peter with Simon Tanner. 
And then uh, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. Now notice, these also are believers. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So there's the term, explained. You're given the description. You're given the full and complete description. You're bringing out all the details so that they're able to go to Joppa and they're able to find Peter. They're able to find the tanner's house. You know, just following your nose, those places stink. All right, able to, um, <laughs> it's like my mother grew up in Longview. There's a lumber mill town. That, that, there's a unique smell for you. You know that when you're approaching town. All right, and uh, there it is. Uh, over to Acts 15, the next use, two uses in chapter 15, verse 12 and verse 14. Now, what's remarkable is this takes place during the Jerusalem Council, what we call the, the first ever pastor's conference. Okay? It included pastors and evangelists and apostles and all these gifts coming together to try to resolve the fact that there was this uh, tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in, uh, in, the, in the early church. And uh, there was a faction, there was a party within uh, the early church, the Judaizers, that felt that, uh, that uh, they needed to be circumcised and follow the custom of Moses, or they couldn't be true believers. And so, um, you see how the start of this in verse 1, some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Yeah, you've trusted in Christ, but you've got you to follow the law. You've got to get circumcised. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Okay, now why is that? Is it because there's a pope there in Jerusalem and, and uh, Peter and Barnabas got to get their doctrine sort, sorted out, submitting to the authority of the, of the pope? How is this? Why is this procedure such a blessing for us to understand in, in Acts chapter 15? I think it's, I think it's a wonderful chapter. The, the fact is, there is no pope. The fact is, is the church was not designed with an earthly head. The church was designed with the head seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that every right-hand messenger on this earth is a right-hand messenger held in the right hand of the head of the church, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's our hierarchy. <laughs> so what's the value in going to the conference? The value in going to the conference is for iron to sharpen iron. For the teaching to take place, for the considerations to be given, for, uh, for the um, exegeting to occur, that is the describing and the, and the detailing of what ministry is being blessed and glorified, and then uh, convictions can come to as each man departs and returns back to their field of ministry. So therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they are, I mean, this is really the definition of of apostle you're, you're commissioned you're sent with a mission and paul and barnabas are sent by the church their local church there and they were passing through both phoenicia and samaria describing in detail the conversion that's verse three it's not our term exegetamai but it is similar describing in detail the conversion of the gentiles and we're bringing great joy to all the brethren so along the way there's fruit that's taking place and when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders 
And they reported all that God had done with them. So we have missionary reports. It blesses us to not be so focused on us, <laughs> to learn from people out there what's going on there. And we can pray for them and they can pray for us. And everyone's encouraged. It's a win-win. I think it's, uh, it is noteworthy at this point of time, received by the church and by the apostles and the elders. Now that seems to be a different group. And we're going to notice by the end of this, it's not Peter that gives the final word, it's James who gives the final word. And it's, it's, I think it shows an interesting transition here as they, more and more the apostles are moving on anyway, branching out beyond the, the realms of, of uh, Jerusalem. This church is about to be handed off to James and the elders. Okay, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, now there were some Pharisees that got saved. Paul was one. Okay, uh, Nicodemus was one. Problem is, is if you've got legalism in your background, you have attitudes you bring with you <laughs> into your Christian walk that have to be undone, have to be retrained, have to be relearned. And uh, here's the problem. Saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now notice, they were, they were allowed in a conference setting, in a conference setting, under the, uh, the listening of the apostles and the listening of the elders, they voiced their theological viewpoints. It's a little bit different if you're in a journal setting or you're in a conference setting and you've got pastors that are assembled. Okay. They voiced what, uh, you know, Paul would say, well, I would never let that go in my pulpit, okay? But it's, it's not a local church setting, it's a conference setting, a little bit different. So the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. And uh, after there had been so much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, see, it's, it's not a, it's not a uh, monologue, it's not a teaching with authority format. There's a debate involved. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that, uh, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who uh, knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Okay, So these early days, talking about you know, the fruit that he had with Cornelius and the, the Gentiles there in Caesarea. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And they got the same Holy Spirit I got. Same Holy Spirit you got. And so what's he doing here? He's exegeting. He's relating the experience. Saying this is the fruit that we've seen born. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Do we want to reintroduce law observance here in the church age? It didn't work out so well for us in the age of Israel. <laughs> We want to bring that back here? What would be the point of that? We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. And so all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating, there's our term, as they were exegeting, relating, unfolding uh, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, the signs and wonders in the apostolic age were the credentials for the, 
the, uh, the Word of God being written, the New Testament Scriptures being written, but also the validation of the apostles and their ministries. Then after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. So Peter went first. Paul and Barnabas went second. And now James is giving the summation, the closing, the honor of the closing um, session. Okay, I've asked Ralph Braun if he'll give our closing session on Sunday, uh, October 20th. All right, the, 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 the finale for the conference. So, um, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simon has related. There's our term again. Simon has related how uh, God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now notice what he does here. He's taking the testimony, everything that, that Peter related in experience, this is what we've seen unfold, and now he's, what's he doing? He's going back to the scriptures, and he is giving the doctrine that that coincides the doctrine that that harmonizes the doctrine that unfolds why we're seeing what we're seeing in experience you see how he's doing this here he's not he's not exchanging experience for theology he is accepting the experience and now he's finding the scripture that explains it he's finding the scripture and and what has the authority the, the experience or the scripture you gotta be clear on this Okay, last guy, I, last Pentecostal I spoke to, uh, I gave him my best uh, doctrine out of 1 Corinthians related to why tongues shall cease. And he didn't want to hear any of it. He says, because I speak in tongues. Well, I'm guessing you do then. And, and his experience trumped anything you wanted to tell him about the Scriptures. Because if I do it, it must be right. Okay, well, there's a theology for you. <laughs> Would you say the same thing about fornicating? You know, say, well, I'm doing it. It must be right. So just because you're doing it doesn't mean it's right. You know, don't, don't determine your theology by your practices. Determine your practices by your theology and have good theology. So anyway, James uh, takes it back to the scriptures and um, brings them through uh, Amos and uh, Isaiah. Anyway, then they come to an application at the end of it. They come to an application. All right, then finally, um, he says, therefore it is my judgment. Verse 19. You've got to come to a judgment. The, the, the neat thing about ministry, if you're not a legalist, is that you present the Word of God, you, you teach so that the Word of God transforms thinking, and then believers that are growing are able to form their own judgment. They come to their own faith convictions. They have, they, uh, they have a walk with the Lord that's being shaped by how their thinking is being renewed and transformed. And that's a wonderful thing. You just leave it with them and their judgment. And uh, the older they get, the better their judgment's going to become. And it's, uh, it's a great way to relax in uh, letting grace do its thing. All right. And what's going to happen? Conference is going to end. They're going to go back to their towns. They're going to report back. They're uh, going to encourage with uh, a lengthy message. In fact, they'll even pick up some helpers here. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. And uh, Silas, otherwise known as Silvanus, ends up becoming one of Paul's companions, goes with them to Thessalonica, helps write First uh, Thessalonians, and um, travels with Peter some. And 
different things that happen there. All right. Um, so we get to the end of the chapter and uh, in verse 30, they were sent away. They went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter, the one that was uh, kind of the summary, the recap of what they had decided in the in the conference. We're going to compile all our papers in October from the different uh, presentations and publish a, a journal, a conference journal of different submissions related to uh, Romans 6.17. And uh, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. We can draw encouragement from what other churches are learning, what other, other churches are doing, things they're involved with. And Judas and Silas also, being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Okay? Not just a dinky little sermonette. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, that's the first ever pastor's conference, and I'm looking forward to the one we're going to host. All right, chapter 21, then, the last use of ex agetamai in 21.19. Paul arrives in Jerusalem after uh, storm and shipwreck and um, or not shipwreck, but chapter 20, chapter 21, then he makes it to Jerusalem. In verse 15, uh, starting our way up to Jerusalem, some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Man- uh, Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Here's a, a hospitality ministry that this uh, fellow is engaged in. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, where are the, where are the apostles now at this point? Why is it just James and the elders? What happened to the other apostles? There was uh, Peter and John and James earlier. The pillars were there earlier, but now they don't seem to be there anymore. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul went in with us to James. It's like he's reporting in. You can't board a ship until you report uh, you know, to the captain for permission to come aboard. Um, yeah, I've got to be careful with that. There's no <laughs> we, we do so as a tradition. We do so as a practice. Um, anytime I'm in Seattle, which has been a while now, uh, I like to go visit. Of course, Ken Jensen's in heaven, so I've got to go visit John Eichmann. It's uh, reporting in. You know, if I'm going to go to Bastrop, I'm going to visit uh, Lost Pines Bible Church. I'm going to report in to Pastor Cliff. Say, reporting in. You know, not like he's the bishop of Bastrop or <laughs> anything. We have no authority outside our our flocks. But there is a pattern here. He went first of all. He went to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one. Okay, so it's it's sequential. It's it's a systematic, it's comprehensive, detailed, all the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, why, why is he bragging? What's he doing? What's he doing? Okay. When we uh, have our end of year message and we talk about 260 hours of Bible class, and we talk about the different subjects that we've done, Life of Christ and Romans and, and angelology and, and uh, scripture memory, and we talk about... Um, evangelism we talk about the classes that doug has taught the classes that dan has taught 
And in some cases, from year to year, maybe it's the first time they've ever taught a class. Or maybe we're going to talk about a Sunday morning when, when uh, Bob the Son is going to, going to have a class because uh, Bob the Father is going to be away for a weekend kind of a thing. Or, um, we still got to settle that. I think Bob and Dan are going to split the two morning messages coming up. Um, why do we do that at the end of the year? Why do we go back and recap those things? Why do we summarize those things? Why do we exegetize those things one by one in sequence? Because it's good. It's a reminder. It's an encourager. It is a benefit. It is, it is not to brag about what we're doing. It's to give credit and testimony to what God is providing for us in this flock. We talk about uh, scriptures. We talk about... Uh, we, we did eight weeks of scripture memory this summer. Eight weeks. And we had a sister and we had a brother that were able to rattle off all 16 of those verses, top to bottom. Was that encouraging? That, if you weren't here Sunday night, you missed it. That was awesome. Okay? And not just, and then, of course, Christopher went on and did even more because he, he added the 40 we had done two years ago in, uh, in, in 2011. So he ran through 56 verses top to bottom. And then on the drive home, he berated himself because he said one word wrong. And, and no one of us in the room caught it, even though we were watching the screen as, as he was reciting. But see, that's the kind of thing. And you start to observe, you know what? The Lord is at work in this 17-year-old young man. And that's a good thing. And our sister Fallon, who, who did the other 16 verses, right? The Lord is at work. And he's at work, and, and, and it's dynamic. And that's a powerful thing. You know, other churches, they want to measure numbers or money or different things. So, um, here they are, the disciples relating. Man, we didn't know who he was. We're telling him about his own death on the cross. We didn't know who he was. We were telling him about the women we didn't believe. We didn't know who he was. And then uh, we invited him to spend the night with us, and we still didn't know who he was. And then we started eating with him. We still didn't know who he was. And then he broke bread and blessed it and handed it to us, and we knew who he was. <laughs> oh, okay. But see, think about it. You and I get to do the same thing. Because we get taught a doctrine, and we don't understand it. And then uh, it came from the pastor. We don't understand it. And then a guest speaker taught it. We didn't understand it. And then a, a, a brother came alongside, tried to encourage us. We didn't understand it. And then we were tested. And then we understood it. <laughs> and then our eyes were opened. And oh, that's what that's about. Why didn't I get it the first four times? Why was it that fine? Why? See, this is how God does it. And he's so good at this. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. All the circumstances and details. When that doctrine is finally going to be real, and it's not strictly an academic thing, it starts there. But then you see, at a certain point, objective reality has to become a subjective realization. And then it's my faith. And then it's in my soul. Then it's dwelling richly in my life. All right? I can recite a verse where it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But then I can also relate to you, exegetamai, I can exegete for you all the times in my life where God did not leave me nor forsake me. Okay? And that's a good thing. In fact, we're commanded to testify to that.
All right, let me give you a preview then for what we're going to start. I got 12 minutes. And um, to get us started on Doubting Thomas. We're going to move on. Don't label this message with this, I suppose. We'll just keep today's message labeled Event 6. Our final 11 minutes will just be a sneak peek. Next week, we'll come back to um, Event 7 and Event 8. Combining Event 7 and Event 8 into a single development, single outline of study. More appearances. Okay, so who has he appeared to? He's appeared to um, Mary Magdalene in the garden, where she thought he was the gardener. He appeared to the other women somewhere in between the garden and the, and the uh, disciples' place. Uh, so he's appeared to a bunch of women. Then he appeared to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Then he appeared to Cephas. He's had four appearances. Next, he's going to appear to the twelve, except Thomas is missing. So he'll come back a week later and appear to the twelve with Thomas present. Then at a point after that, he'll appear to more than 500 at one time, which is not described in the Gospels, but it is described in 1 Corinthians 15. And then, um, and then he gives the Great Commission, which is probably the same event where he appeared to the 500 at one time. Huge mountain setting, large open venue. How much space do you need for 500? We couldn't fit 500 in this room. How much, uh, how much space do you need to appear to more than 500 brethren at one time? So I'm suspecting it was on the mount when he gave the, the uh, Great Commission. All right, um, and you'll notice this picks up right where we left off in Luke 24, and then it goes over to the Gospel of John. It's important that we take them in this order, Luke 24 and then John, because there's nothing in Luke 24 that tells us it was two events or that Thomas was missing the first time. Uh, so Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. We've read 35 a couple times now. They were relating their experiences on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we saw him, we saw him, and here's what happened, and here's what here's what really happened. And then while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. <laughs> They're talking about him, and there he is. And you can imagine it's quite frightening because the doors were shut and locked. We learned that over in John chapter twenty. The doors were shut and locked. And then boom, there he is. How did he get here? Okay, <laughs> we'll have some fun with that. This is uh, this is kind of how I met my uh, in-laws. We were um, this is how I met Ted and Charlene. True story. We were uh, at a at a restaurant on a Sunday after church, and um, I was with uh, the Hatley family, and we were eating our uh, eating our dinner. And while we were sitting there at the table, we saw I saw <laughs> um, coming through the front door of the place. I saw. Sharon. And I knew her last name. And I knew her sister by sight. Hadn't really spoken to her very much. And Sharon and her sister walked in, and a couple of older folks were with them. And I said, I'm guessing those might be her parents. That's Sharon and her sister. And they were coming after their church. Or, yeah, the, the Schneiders are Lutherans. Anyway, um, so <laughs> I spent the next 10 minutes trying to figure out how I could go over there and, and, and meet her parents. 
and I couldn't figure out a way to do it. I just sat there, sat there, and they, they, I saw them uh, get their food and sit at their table and across the place. I'm thinking, how do I go by there? How do I go by there? And, um, and then finally it dawned on me. I said, wow, where, where, where are the restrooms? <laughs> and Sue Hatley said, I think they're right over there in the corner, just past that table, right over there. Okay, so I got up and passed by to go to the restrooms. And, but so now here's the thing. What I didn't know was at that table, um, she had been spending the last 10 minutes talking to her parents and her sister about this army guy that was coming down from Fort Hood and a real new visitor at the church. And, and uh, you know, she'd met me a couple of times and had played bridge uh, the Friday night before. Uh, and so she was kind of, it was just like this verse right here in Luke 24, 36. While she was telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. <laughs> but see, I didn't say peace be to you. I, I failed. I, I, I ruined my line there. I should have said peace be to you. I just walked up to the table and I said, well, hi. And, and she turns and she said, and there he is. Yeah, just like that. And as soon as she said, and there he is, I knew that she was talking about me. But that's how I met my in-laws, the very first time I ever met my in-laws. And they were startled <laughs> and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. <laughs> okay. I'm back to the Bible now at this point. I, I'm done with the, I, I wish we had a poncho still in town. You know, I mean, do you remember ponchos? Oh, man. And you raise that little Mexican flag up and they bring you more sopapillas and... Yeah, best soap I've ever had in my life. There's no more ponchos, and you got to go to Fort Worth or Dallas or somewhere to get there. El Paso, okay. So, um, what we see here, they're startled and frightened, and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. It's a ghost. Now, <laughs> the women told him he was alive, and they didn't believe it. And then Peter saw him, and they started to believe it. And then these two Emmaus Road disciples show up, say, we saw him too. And yet they're still having trouble believing it. And then he pops in among them. Just pop. There he is. We don't know if he teleported in or what he did. The, the, the doors were shut. Boom, there he is. Peace be to you. And they thought, we're seeing a spirit. This must be a ghost. This must be a phantasm of some sort. And uh, Numa in this passage, it's phantasma when he's walking on the water. Um, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm real. Quit being scared. And he invites, he orders them, touch me and see. This is a command, touch me. And it's different, remember when he told Mary Magdalene, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father who is in heaven. But now he says, touch me. That's why I've concluded that in between the don't touch me and the touch me, he ascended to his Father in heaven. He had multiple ascensions. He had to lead captivity captive. He had to cleanse the heavenly temple. He had to receive all authority in heaven and on earth, which was done before he gave the Great Commission. And then he had his final ascension from the Mount of Olives that left all the disciples looking up like turkeys in the rain and uh, where he was seated at the Father's right hand. He had at least three ascensions, maybe more. 
He was popping in and out, popping all over the place. He was in the in the in the uh, garden on the Emmaus Road. He appeared to Cephas wherever Cephas was, probably at his at his house. We were told that Peter went to his own home. Um, and now here in uh, this, you know, I keep saying it's the upper room. We don't know that for a fact. We just know that's the room that was available to them the night before, and we think, well, maybe it was available to them again the next night. Uh, but there's some kind of house in Jerusalem that they're able to meet in. Maybe it was John's home where he took Mary. But here he says, touch me. Touch me. And uh, you'll see I'm not a spirit. His, his resurrection body is a spirit body, but it's touchable. At least can be. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. We're going to talk about could. Could and did. Could and would. Okay. Because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he gave them a piece, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Okay. I'm not fond of fish, but Jesus is, and there it is. And he took it and ate it before them. Nothing sinful. If you eat fish, you're an imitator of Christ, and God bless you. Uh, just a, a matter of taste. He, so he took it and ate it before him. And he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's got teaching for them. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures in verse 45. I love that verse. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This ought to be our prayer at the start of every Bible class. You know, not just, am I in fellowship or not? Confess my sins. Okay, I'm in fellowship. Why is the pastor taking so long? Okay. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to time. This is terrible. But see, he's in heaven now, so. Um, but, you know, how long does PJ take in his silent prayer? Sometimes it was 10 seconds. Sometimes it was 20. One time it was 45 seconds. Like, man. When it took 45 seconds, I'm thinking, PJ, how carnal are you? <laughs> you know? How many sins does a pastor have to confess? Isn't that terrible? Anyway, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So use your uh, opening prayer time and ask that. Say, Lord, open my mind to understand the scriptures. Open the eyes of my mind. Open the ears of my heart. Open my mind to understand the scriptures. I've assembled to study the scriptures. All right, now, there's nothing. Did you see Thomas anywhere in that chapter? Okay, there's, there's nothing in this chapter that says Thomas was missing and didn't believe all the other guys. That happens in John chapter 20. And I'm out of time, but we'll come back next week. We'll look at uh, Luke 24 again. We'll look at John 20 again. We're going to see that Jesus actually shows up twice. The first time is the same Sunday night, April, April 5th, okay? Late Sunday night, April 5th. But then it's eight days later when finally Thomas is there and the Lord shows up again. Same thing, peace be to you. And uh, pops into the locked room. This time Thomas is there. All right. Wonderful doctrine. We'll get a good start on that. That's your teaser. That's your preview. So come back next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the reality of your word. Thank you that it does come alive. It is um, a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It does pierce, Father to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And sometimes it pierces so deep, Father, it hurts, but it needs to. We thank you for that. 
Um, thank you for these disciples on the Emmaus Road. Thank you for the example they set. Pray that we might learn by their example and be imitators, Father, that we too would be disciples eager to have our eyes open. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.